We'll be going through Judges 6. This is a, a, a story that everyone knows, but as we hear this account, I want us to listen for some things in this story, in this account, that listen for the fact that the people are in fear and then the effect of God's presence. And so, as Dan reads the scripture for us this morning, be listening to see the effects of God's presence. So, Dan, would you read God's word for us? Judges chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, the Malachites, and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste to the land as they came in, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. For the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord." When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abazarite, while his, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonders and deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to bring you out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat, unleavened cakes, and an ipa of flour, Meat and he put in the basket, and broth he poured in a pot, and brought them to under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes, and put them on the rock, and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and touched the meat and unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, 
you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abetharites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of Asherah that you have, shall cut. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day. He did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, their altar of Baal was broken down, and the asher beside it was cut down, and the second bowl was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the asher beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abetharites all were all called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went out to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew to, from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Let me test just once more with the fleece. Please, let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground there was dew. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what your word reveals to us about us. Thank you for what your word reveals to us about our need for you, our need for your presence. God, there are so many reasons to be doubtful, to fear, to be discouraged, despondent, Lord, to, to be uncertain and hesitant in this time, Lord, just as there always has been. And Lord, yet you give us your presence, you assure us, and Lord, I pray that this morning that, that we would find courage and assurance and equipping and enabling by your presence. God, would you help us see you in your word? Would you help us see your power, your might, your presence through your word? God, I pray for your enabling to all of us to hear, and I pray for your enabling for me to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 
have you ever been so fearful that you hid? Like you've ever hid in a closet when you were little maybe or because you were afraid or maybe hid in a bathtub or you hid somewhere else like in the movies. They, they, you know, they hide in all the common places underneath your bed. Um, when I was little, I think it was 1970-something. I don't know the year and um, I, I used to go to school on the bus. My mom was a school teacher at a different school and I would come home. Normally she would beat me home, but for some reason, I think she had a parent-teacher conference and I got home off the bus and no one was at my house. And I didn't have a key and I didn't know what was going on. And I knocked on my door, the front door, the back door, went all around. That house was dark. I went to the house next door. My neighbor was not there. My other neighbor wasn't there. And I was terrified. I think it was in kindergarten, so somewhere between four and five years old, and, and I didn't know what to do. I thought that everybody had left. I thought that the rapture had occurred. I, I had heard some scary teaching, bad teaching in the 70s, and I thought I'd been left behind, that my whole family had left, that my parents had left, and that God had left me. I felt abandoned. I felt alone, so I hid I felt like I'd been left alone. I felt like I'd been abandoned. So I, I hid behind the bush, these huge bushes in front of my house, and had like a hole in the back of it. And so I went in the hole and I hid there for what seemed like an eternity. It was probably maybe an hour or so. I don't know exactly how long it was, but it wasn't really that long. But in my five year old mind, it seemed like forever. And, and then my mom showed up. And when she showed up, I ran out from behind the bushes. I surprised her. She was a little shocked. And I was bawling. And she grabbed me and she hugged me. And her presence comforted me. And then I realized that I wasn't alone, that she was with me. And it made all the difference. It made all the difference. I, 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 I thought that I was alone. I thought that I'd been left. I thought that I'd been abandoned, even though I really hadn't. And it didn't take long for me to feel that way. It doesn't take any of us very long to feel like God has left us, God has abandoned us, God, we've been left behind. When, when trials hit, when circumstances are difficult, when, when hardship comes, when we might experience the discipline of the Lord, sometimes we mistakenly think that, that we've been abandoned, that we've been left, and we forget God's encouragement to us as believers. What we see in this passage is that God's presence is what we really need. The people were fearful, and for good reason. The, the, the enemies had come in, and they had taken everything away. The enemies would come every year at harvest time, and they would come with an innumerable count of, of, of camels and people. They would come in, and they would eat everything. They would trample the crops. Their, they would bring their livestock to feed. And, and, and you see, the, the Israelites were an agrarian culture, and so this, these enemies would come in with their livestock and the people. They would take all of their crop, leave them with nothing, and then they would kill they would kill their goats, they would kill their livestock, they would, they would kill their donkeys, they would get rid of all of the things that the Israelites relied on to even make their crops, and so they were destitute, despondent, they had nothing, they had reason to fear, but not reason to doubt that God was with them. You know, today we have a lot of reasons, the economy, whatever else might be on your mind. Reasons to fear, but not reasons to doubt and really, if you're God's children, there's no true reason to fear. 
What we see in, in this passage is that God's presence is what we need. It makes all the difference. It made all the difference for Gideon in this passage. The last chapter, it ended so beautifully, didn't it? It didn't. It said, you know, let all of your enemies perish, O Lord. But it says, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And this one opens with this, this same contrast, another failure. And yet they cry out to the Lord after this happens. And God sins this time. He doesn't send the deliverer like he normally does. And, and even when Deborah is raised up and she calls a deliverer, no, he sends a prophet and he corrects them. They were already living in fear. They were in holes, it says. They, 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 were, they had dug tunnels and caves and holes and they were hitting in the, hiding in the cracks and crevices. Can you imagine living like that? You know, our country, we're, we're used to living really in relative abundance. Can you imagine if our neighbors to the north or south, sounds crazy, if they would come and invade us every time that we would produce anything and take away all of our livelihood? That's what they were experiencing and it was frightening. And they would have to take their families and hide in caves. And they would make underground tunnels. And, and they would hide in, away from the enemy. The enemy would come, reap all the land, and they would come back out again. You can only imagine how fearful they were. They're desolate. They're desperate. They're living in fear. And yet there is a reason God brings his presence. But shockingly, he brings his presence to correct and confront them. Because really what they need is they don't need to be stuck in their old ways. They don't need to be stuck in their habits. They don't need to be stuck in the same patterns again and again. And God is merciful and kind. And he wants his people to get out of those patterns, to get out of those habits and ways. And so he's present, we see in 7 to 10, he's present to confront and to correct them. You know, so often we can misread God's correction as... Something that's mean, but yet God wants to say that, hey, I want you to see where your fear will lead you. I want you to see where your sin is taking you. And I'm, and I'm going to bring confrontation and correction because God wants to bring deliverance. And that's immediately what he does after this passage. But, but first he tells them, he says that, you know, this prophet says that basically you, don't, you have no right to ask for deliverance. He cautions them you can't make any assumptions that crying out to God that it automatically guarantees you're going to be rescued. Because here's the thing, God expects genuine repentance and obedience and it's a sign of their following God and it's something they haven't done. God confronts them though and he doesn't just say like he has every other time that you did, the people did evil in my sight and they followed after other idols. No, I want you to look down your passage. It says that they didn't obey his word and it says specifically they didn't obey his command to what? To fear the gods of the Ammonites. He says you shall not fear the gods of the Ammonites. Their, their disobedience this time was they were fearing other gods. Now, that could just be a way of saying that, that they were actually worshiping other gods, and that's true. They were worshiping false gods, and that's the same pattern. But the language here is a little different than what's been used at every other point in the book of Judges, because he says they disobeyed his command to not fear, not fear the gods of the Ammonites, not fear as if those gods could really do something to them or as if they didn't worship those gods, they wouldn't get something. Now, God confronts us as well and says, what are you fearing? He wants to confront our fears and say, what gods do you think if you don't worship, you will get harm? Sometimes God confronts us because he wants to free us 
And so we see that God, he confronts them and corrects their fear. They were fearing. They thought that these other gods could do them harm if they didn't worship them. So they had to placate them. You know, I don't know what idols that you struggle with, but for me, one of my bigger struggles, um, it doesn't have to do with other people typically, it has to do with my own little realm. And, and, I, and I fear the, the lack of ability of control. And so when I go and work on my car, if I get angry, I'm not angry at somebody else, I'm not angry at the car, I'm angry because it reveals some things. I'm looking for control and I realize this is out of my control. And I fear that if I'm not in control, things will go badly. Or, or maybe it's because I, I, I fear that if I'm not able to figure something out, then hope is lost. And so I have maybe an idol of thinking, you know, wanting to be able to fix things, wanting to be able to solve things, wanting to be able to address things. And I fear that I won't be able to do that because I believe that being competent, being in control, if I, if I don't have those things, then, then I'll... I'll receive some bad consequences. Bad things will happen. Now, I don't know what idols you might fear, what idols there are in your own life, what idols you feel like you need to placate. Maybe it's money or power or prestige or people's opinions of you. But God's correction and God's confrontation is to deliver us from our fears. And he doesn't just do that, though. He is gracious. He doesn't just confront and correct them. Then he provides his presence for them. And so we see that, that God comes to them, the angel of the Lord himself. Now, this is probably the pre-incarnate Christ whenever we see this in Scripture. We know that from verse 14 and verse 27 because it says, The Lord, the Lord, not just the angel of the Lord, but the Lord is with him, it says, now the angel of the Lord comes in verse 11 and sits under the, this oak tree at or Ophrah, which belongs to his father. And Gideon here, he is in hiding. But the Lord's presence is what gives him courage and might. Now it's kind of funny because when God comes to him, when the Lord comes to him, what's the first thing that the Lord declares to Gideon? Look down at verse 12. It's kind of ironic, right? Because what's Gideon doing? Gideon is in this wine press. He's in this depressed area that's, that's kind of dug out from the earth, and, and it's, it's below the, the level of the plain around him, and so it's where they would, they would squeeze the grapes, and below that was built a little catchment for, for catching things, but he has the wheat, and he's in there hiding because he's afraid that the Midianites, the Malachites, will see him, and so he's in hiding. This is not the picture of a courageous person. This is not the picture of a mighty person, a person of valor, and yet, look in verse 12, he says, The angel of the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, if you saw Gideon hiding, beating out the wheat in this wine press, would you think, Oh, what a courageous, what a courageous man, full of valor. He's just, he's so courageous, he's so mighty. No, you think he's timid, he's fearful. But that's not what God says, it's not what God speaks about him, because God's presence defines him, God's presence changes everything. And he says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The thing that's striking is that there's really nothing impressive about Gideon. He's just the son of Joash, he's hiding. He's doing labor, that's noble work, but he's hiding 
Maybe he was smart and savvy by doing it in the wine press, but he is fearful, and that's what we see. And actually, fear is the thread that runs throughout this entire passage because he corrects them for fearing what's the first thing we see. Gideon is fearing. And then later on, Gideon says he, was, he obeys God, but he's even too afraid in the way he obeys God. He does it at night because he's afraid. And yet God comes to Gideon in his fear. And his presence gives might and courage. Look in verse 27, it says, He was too afraid of his family and the men of his tower. And the very thing that God had corrected the people for, the thing, it was the thing that Gideon himself was guilty of. He was fearing. But what does God do? The God, God comes to him, the Lord comes to him in his fears, and he declares to him, the Lord is with you. Do you realize that the Lord is with you? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are one of his people, if you have been made his people, his nation now, by putting your faith, your trust in Christ, then here's the thing. Whether you see it or not, whether you're aware of it or not, whether it feels like that God is distant from you or not, God is with you. But to begin with, Gideon, he wasn't demonstrating any great faith. But God sees the man that he's going to make. God knows that his presence makes all the difference. And it seems to be just wrong. This, this man of valor, he's, he's timid. He's, he's hiding. He's working for his dad who actually has a pagan shrine in the front yard. And yet... It just shows that God is able to take weak, timid, unlikely people and to make them mighty in him. God saw what he was going to do with Gideon, and, and, then, and then God knew that his power would make all the difference. And, and that's what God does, because God, God chooses to work with those who are weak and timid and fearful. And here's the good news. God comes to us in the midst of our fears. He doesn't abandon us. He'll bring correction, but he, he is with us. He doesn't abandon us. He brings his grace along with his correction. He doesn't just correct, but he, be, he, he brings his gracious presence to enable us to change. And that's good news for you and I today, isn't it? Because so often we are fearful. So often we forget. So often we're like Gideon and we're hiding. We forget whose we are. We forget who we belong to. We forget where our true power, where our true might comes from. And we think that it depends on us. And God speaks into existence what was not true of Gideon. And that's what he does for us. All who come to him in faith, God speaks into existence what once was not true. He makes true of us. And God declares that he's a mighty man of valor. And that's, that's actually what God declares to each and every one in him, that he is the one who gives us might. He is the one who gives us courage. He's with him and he defines Gideon and his weaknesses and his fears. Gideon's weaknesses and his fears don't define him, even though he thinks that they do. God defines him. What defines you? Whose definition matters most to you? Where do you look for strength? What does God say about you? I, I like down in verse 13, I, Gideon, he, he doesn't respond. I, I, I love that the Bible doesn't paint an unrealistic picture 
of those that God chooses. Not only is he hiding, but, but God says, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. God declares who, that he is with him, his presence is with him, he declares who he really is, and yet Gideon still doubts, and, and he skips over what the angel of the Lord tells him. He completely ignores who God says he is. Don't we do that too? Skip over, ignore Gideon then accuses God of abandoning him because he's lost perspective. Sometimes we can feel like God's abandoned us. When in fact, they were the ones who had abandoned God. And God was using the Midianites to get them to stop abandoning him. And even now, the irony is that, that Gideon was saying, you know, Lord, if, if all this has happened to us, then how are you really with us? If the Lord is with us, then why are all these bad things happening? If, if, if the Lord is with us, then why, where are all these wonderful deeds? And Gideon's got a short memory. Even now, the Lord, the irony is, the Lord has come to visit him personally. And he doesn't see it. We have a tendency to do the same kind of thing, don't we? We distort the facts. We spin our own truth. We ignore the wonderful deeds he's done for us. We ignore all of his great provision in our lives, his protection, how he's rescued us, how he's redeemed us. And we forget his deliverance. We act like it's no big deal. We act as if God's abandoned us and we forget his promise to never leave or forsake us. And as Christians, when our enemy seems too large, we ignore the fact that his spirit is with us. And how does God answer Gideon? Does he get angry with him? Because, you know, if the Lord appeared in person and said, I'm with you, you're a mighty man of valor, and we're like, yeah, right, if you're really with us, then why all the bad stuff? You would expect that God might get a little frustrated and be like, uh, I'm right here. You might expect him to, to get angry, to correct, to be harsh, to just put Gideon in his place, but what does he do? Look in verse 14. How does God respond? It says, the Lord turned to him. Isn't it the prayer that, that Moses had of the people? May the Lord turn his face to you and be gracious to you. The Lord turns to him. Now I can imagine that the look he gave him was a little like the look that my mom would have given me when I said something stupid. Right? He just declared he was a mighty man of valor, that he is with him, and Gideon, he, he questions the Lord's integrity. He questions if, if you're with us, why all this bad stuff happened? And then, and then he asks, he, he impugns the character of God. And sometimes we have those kind of dumb statements and dumb questions too, don't we? Gideon glosses over the fact that they deserve what they've received. He glosses over the fact that the people of Israel have been continually rebellious. He he. He skims over the fact that the prophet has corrected them for fear. And if you were the Lord, how would you have responded? It's a good thing that we're not. Because he responds with grace. He's restrained. He's patient. It says the Lord turned to him. Now maybe it was the kind of stare that says, what did you say? Did you really just say that? But the Lord turns to him and he doesn't, he doesn't chide him. He's patient, he's gracious with Gideon in his fear. And that's good news for us. He's, he's gracious and he's patient with us in our fears, in our doubts, when we lose perspective, when we can't see, when we don't understand. And, and look at what the Lord says to him. The God doesn't 
answer his question directly, but he gives him the answer he needs. He doesn't explain himself, and God doesn't need to. And if you look throughout the Bible, honestly, when, when, when Job is, is saying, you know, God, where are you? God, God says, where were you when I made the world? And he says, Lord, if you're with us, why is all this bad stuff happening? Lord, if you're with us, then where's all your wonderful deeds? And God doesn't answer that question, but what he does is give him the answer that he needs. It's the answer that we need. And he says something to him that's strange. He says, go in this might of yours. That's his answer. Go in this might of yours. And save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Do I not send you? What he's wanting Gideon to see is that, that the Lord's presence, it equips him and it gives him peace. The Lord's presence, it equips and gives peace. So it's funny that he says, go in this might of yours. But what might does Gideon have? He doesn't have any might. And you know what? He draws attention to that too, doesn't he? Gideon, what's his answer in verse 15? He says, he says please, Lord, come on. Please, how can I save Israel? He says, my, my clan, it's the smallest clan, it's the weakest in Manasseh. And by the way, Manasseh was just a half tribe, one of two tribes. Um, they were sons of Joseph, so the tribe was split in half, and Manasseh was the smaller part of that. And so it was the smallest of the 12 tribes of Israel. They didn't have very many soldiers, and his clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and he is the least, probably the youngest in his father's house. And so Gideon here, he's looking at his own strength. So when God tells him, he says, please, he says, go in this might of yours. Gideon misreads that, and he thinks that's his might, his own might. He thinks that's his ability. Gideon misreads God's command to go in this might of yours as something to say that, well, I've got to create this strength. I've got to be strong enough. I've got to be good enough. My confession has to be good enough. Um, I, I've got to have enough faith. I have to believe hard enough. I have to have strength in myself. No, that's not what God's saying, but that's how Gideon hears it. And he goes, well, I'm not very good. I'm, not, I'm, I'm weak. I'm deficient. Isn't that what we do when God gives us commands to do something that's not possible for us? When God calls us to follow him, so often we look at our own weakness, our own inadequacies, our failings, our inabilities, our smallness, our weakness. But God's not saying that we have to be strong enough on our own. He's not saying we're mighty on our own. He didn't tell Gideon that. The might of his is, is what he just told him about before. Look, look, down, look down to your passage. How did, how did God appear to him to begin with? The angel of the Lord says, the Lord is with you. That's what makes him a mighty man of valor. And then God, God when, when Gideon is objecting, God says, go in this might of yours. I'm with you. That's your might. Don't, listen, church, don't misread. When God calls you to do something, don't, don't misread your weakness as inability to follow God. No, God doesn't expect you to go based on your strength or weakness. God expects you to go based on his strength, his might. The fact that he's with you. His presence is what equips us. But Gideon's more aware of his own weaknesses and inadequacies and all the reasons why God got it wrong when he chose him. Instead of stepping out in faith, confident the Lord's promised to be with him and confident who God was, he is aware, I'm a nobody, I'm small, I can't do this. But what does God do? God a third time tells him something. By the way, whenever God speaks three times, you need to pay attention. 
To begin with, he says, I'm with you. Go in this might of yours. I'm with you. And, and look in verse 16. God, again, he doesn't answer the fact that Gideon is weak. He doesn't care. It's irrelevant to what God's calling him to do because it doesn't depend on his weakness. And so in verse 16, how does he respond? He says, but I'll be with you. It doesn't matter what you're weak or not. It doesn't matter what you have an ability to do or not. He says, but I will be with you. And who is this speaking? This is the great I am. This is the creator of all. And yet, how often do we say, we're too small, we're too weak, we can't conquer this sin, we can't overcome, we're not, we can't believe enough, we can't have enough faith, we can't obey God good enough. And God says, but I will be with you. And because of that, he says, you'll strike the Midianites as one man. What? As one man, like as if God himself was striking the Midianites. And it's interesting that, that, that his commission is, is very similar to Moses. He, God appeared to Moses in a, in a burning bush and when he's hiding out from Pharaoh and, and God appears to Gideon and demonstrates his presence in fire when, when Gideon is hiding out. And, and he receives this exact same commission when God, when God told Moses, I've sent you. And then God told Moses, surely I'll be with you. Gideon should have gotten the hint, but he was still doubtful. We should get the hint too. And, and actually, there's even less excuse for us. But here's the good news. God is merciful and gracious and patient with us. Verse 17, Gideon's wanting to make sure that he's really hearing from the Lord himself. And that's, that's kind of a good thing in a sense that, that Gideon is wanting to make sure that the person he's hearing from is the Lord himself. Now, he should have known by now. But, but he asked for confirmation, so he says, please wait here. And so Gideon says, I'm going to go make a bunch of food. Now, this is not just a small amount of food. He, he kills not only this goat, but he makes the, the equivalent of about 46 pounds of flour to, to make some bread. That's a lot of bread, by the way. 46 pounds of flour makes a lot of unleavened bread. Like hundreds of cakes. I don't know who Gideon was cooking for here. But it's an absurd amount. An ephah of flour, that's 22 liters, about 46 pounds. That's a lot of food. It's an insane amount of food. And by the way, it takes a long time to make. And so God is patient with him. His presence, his patience, he's gracious. It not only equips Gideon, but he gives him peace. And so after however many hours the Lord was waiting under this oak tree, Gideon comes out with all these cakes of bread. I'm really not sure why. Made a ton of bread and made this goat. And so God tells him, he says, the Lord tells him, put it on this rock. It's like a makeshift altar. Put it on this rock. Put the meat there. Put all the unleavened cakes there. Now pour all that broth you have over top of it so you have this huge, soggy pile of bread and meat. And then the Lord is gracious and he reaches out with this tip of his staff and ignites it all. It says rock sprang up. I mean, uh, fire sprang up from the rock. He had him put it on a rock so that Gideon was not doubtful and thinking, oh, this is somehow natural that he there's some trick that he, he made this wood catch fire. No, it's a rock. Rocks don't catch fire, okay? And so he puts it on this rock, and the rock springs up with fire. And then all of a sudden, the Lord vanishes from his sight. And Gideon all of a sudden gets it. 
And now he's really afraid. Like one of the disciples, they're on the Sea of Galilee, and they are, they are fearful of the storms. They forget whose presence is with them in the moment, in the boat. They forget that the Lord of creation is right there, and they're fearful. And they're like, Lord, don't you even care? And isn't that us, by the way? And he stands up and he says, peace be still. And now they're really afraid. Because who does that? What manner of man commands the waves and the sea? And Gideon now knows, oh, who was I really talking to? I was talking to God himself. And in the Old Testament, if you see God's face, you die. And so Gideon, he's encouraged, but oh, God's holy presence, it is terrifying. And so Gideon knows that, and so he, he cries out. He says, alas, O Lord God, in verse 22, I've, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But here's what God speaks to him. You see, God comes to Gideon his fears. He calms him. He equips him. He gives him peace. Look at, look at what he says. In, in Gideon's fear, the Lord speaks his word of shalom, his word of peace to Gideon. He says, don't fear, you shall not die. You see, God's word, his presence, that's what gives us peace. It's not the changing of circumstances, but it's an awareness of God's presence with us that drives away fear and gives Gideon life. God's word coming to Gideon, his presence, his words spoken to him are, are words that wash over him like great waves of peace to give him assurance and what peace-filled and merciful words. These words are Gideon's ears. Do you hear God's words to you? I, my favorite passage of scripture is, is Romans Eight and nine. And, and I love it because it starts in the middle, well, begins with saying there's no condemnation for us. And then it says that, that when we're just too weak, when we're not able to obey God, we, we don't even know what to do. The Holy Spirit is with us. We don't even know how to pray as we ought to. The Holy Spirit prays for us with groaning too deep for words. And then, and then when we feel like there's, there's no hope, like, like, we're, God doesn't give us what we need. He says, God is for us. He, he, he didn't spare his son. How will he not also with his son freely give us everything that we need? And yet we doubt that. And we doubt that, well, maybe he's with us, but does he really love us? And then it says, well, nothing will separate you from the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. And, and no matter what happens to you, no matter what's going on around you, through him you are more than conquerors. Not through us, not through our own abilities, but through his very presence with us. And God's presence gives, not only equips Gideon, but it gives him peace. Have you heard the words of the Lord? Have you received his peace? His presence gives us peace and his word speaks peace to us. But here's the thing, once, once God's presence is with us, he, he doesn't, he's not complacent about our sin. He, he doesn't tolerate our idolatry. The Lord's presence then calls Gideon after God equips him and he gives him peace. Then God calls him to remove the idolatry that he corrected him for to begin with. You see, we need his, we need his presence to remove idolatry. And the Lord pres, Lord's presence not only equips us, but it then calls us to remove idolatry. And where does it start? He doesn't go, go out and say, remove the idolatrous practices everywhere in the nation. No, he says, go to your own house. Start at home. 
God comes again to him in some fashion in the night and he's pursuing and strengthening, commissioning, giving peace and calling him to worship. And then God commands him, he says, I want you, you dad's got these idols out front, these two idols, Baal and Asherah, uh, is provision and protection. That's his dad's idols, that's the idols of the people around them because they were agrarian, they looked for provision and protection. And by the way, I'm not sure what idols you might be looking for, maybe it's provision and protection as well. And the first response that, that God gives, he equips, he gives peace, and he calls him to remove idolatry. And he starts by working at home. He says, I want you to get rid of the idols in your own house before you go out and do what I told you to do. Our following God's commission, it begins behind the closed doors of our own homes. What we do in private matters to God. Whether we allow idolatry into our house, whether we allow idolatry in the home, it matters to God. Not because God has some weird hang-up. No, but because God actually wants us to be set free. He wants us to follow him and to be enabled to go and conquer, but to, to do what he's calling us to do, he wants to get rid of those idols that hinder us. He wants us to follow him, and following him begins re- with removing those things that are the sacred idols in our own lives. You know, for, for me, I'm aware that I... I I have some idols of my own that I I need to work on, I need to remove, I need to get rid of, I need to tear down. What idols do you have in your own life? Is it provision, protection? Is it an idol idol of ease? Is it an idol of money or an idol of a perfect family? Whatever that is that God is revealing to you, it's because he loves you and he wants to set you free. Commentator Barry Webb says, there can be no shalom which is wholeness or covenant blessing for Israel, as long as she remains divided in her religious loyalties. So Gideon's not allowed to enjoy for very long the shalom of a merely private and personal religious experience. He is told at once that night to begin to act out its radical transforming consequences for his own family and community, and he has to start where it's hardest at home. Before he's going to use him to deliver the nation, he's delivering him from idolatry at home, and he expects Gideon to take steps to obey him. So Gideon does. He takes ten men, and he goes, and he tears down these idols. He does it at night. He's still a little fearful. His obedience is, is not faith-filled. He doesn't have to have enough faith for God to bless him. That's a good news for us. He just steps out in one step of obedience, and he takes, tears down these idols. But the men in the town, they get up, and they're angry. They're livid. They are so mad they want to kill him. And you know what, when, when we start tearing down idols, it, it reveals anger. And you know, when, when somebody attacks your idols, we're, we're not as much like Gideon as we are the men of the town here, right? We're not as much like Gideon in this story, the hero of the story, even though he's flawed and imperfect, as we are like the men of the town. Because when somebody attacks my idol of control or wanting to be competent or wanting to understand or figure things out, you know what happens and when, the, when the car attacks my idol... <laughs> I get angry. And anger is often a means to reveal those idols we need to tear down. Anger often reveals idolatry. It reveals where we're really putting our hope, where we're really putting our faith and our confidence. Where do you get, maybe you don't, when you think of anger, you hear like, ah, that kind of anger, yelling, screaming kind of anger. But really, anger can take all kinds of forms. Anger can be quiet. 
It can be cold. It can withdraw. You know, if a husband and wife fight, they're like, we never really get angry at each other. Really? You just give each other the silent treatment. Well, that's a, that's a form of anger. Impatience, irritability, sarcastic words or comments, cutting comments. Those are all revelatory of something that's going on in our hearts when we have idols that are challenged. That's what James 4 tells us. Why are there quarrels and there are fights among us? When, isn't it this, that we, we don't get what we want? We're like these men who react to Gideon. I love how his dad responds. His dad, who was previously the one who put these idols up, Gideon's actions actually have an influence on his own dad. That's really cool to see because his dad doesn't say, yeah, you're right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually bring Gideon out and you can kill him. No, he's like, hey, if you want to contend for Baal, have at it, but you're going to be dead in the morning. It's this, it's this kind of dirty, hairy moment, if you will. He says, like, try to kill my son, you'll be, you'll be dead by morning. He goes jersey on them, right? He's... You know, let your God defend and fight for himself. If he cares about his altar being broken down, and God's revealing that all these false gods are no gods at all. All the false gods we trust in are no gods at all. They don't deliver. They don't fight for us. They don't contend. And Gideon gets a new name. And then I like how he, he obeys this huge number of people come up against him right afterwards though because just because we're obeying God doesn't mean that everything will go okay he obeys God and all these Midianites they come out and they camp the Amalekites they come out and camp in the valley but here's the really cool thing we see is that, that the Lord's presence it enables and it calms fears what's, what's the very first thing that happens in verse 34 it says the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon that's what he needs. He needs God's very spirit. He needs his spirit, and that was his strength, and that enables him to go out, and he calls all these people, and over 32,000 people, we know from the different counts in Chronicles, how many people come out, and it's like 32,000 people respond to him because his spirit is his strength. God's spirit is his strength, and God's spirit is our strength. That's what was prophesied about in the book of Acts as well. In, in Acts 1.8, um, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. Um, in, in Luke 24, 49, he had told them, behold, I'm sending the promise of the Spirit and stay there until you receive, you're clothed with power from on high. And here's the promise that we've been given that he clothes each and every person here with his Spirit who has put their faith in Christ, been made his children. You've been given his Spirit as a sign. Gideon was still faltering in his faith. He needed a sign of this fleece. And by the way, this is not an encouragement for you to go and test God or have these different open door, closed door, weird tests of God. No, we already have his word. Gideon wanted to make sure that he heard correctly. We had God's word. He really understood. We already have God's word. We don't need any such tests. And actually, the Bible prohibits us from testing God. But the Spirit of God had clothed Gideon and empowered him. And then God is gracious. How Gideon was still doubtful. And, and by the way, believer, you might still be doubtful, but God is gracious. He condescends to Gideon. He understands that Gideon is still a little fearful. And God says, I'm going to reassure you that it's me speaking to you. I'm going to reassure you of my might. I'm going to reassure you of my presence. I'm going to give you the sign that you need. 
And God has given us today the only sign that we really need. He's given us the sign of the cross. That's why we have a cross behind me. That's why we have a cross on our buildings. We, the cross is a sign of God's presence. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the very presence of God with us. Not just he appeared once, but he is now permanently with us through his Holy Spirit. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And he says, it's better if I go so that you can have the Holy Spirit's presence with you. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And he gives us the cross as a sign, as an assurance of his presence with us, as a sign that he is no longer angry with us, that he's paid for all of our sins. As a sign and a seal, he gives us his Holy Spirit. God comes to us in our weakness and our fear. He pursues us in our doubts and our discouragement. Maybe you're doubting or discouraged or fearful this morning. God is patient. He's gracious. When we're tempted to fear, remember what the Lord has done for us. Remember that he is with us. He comes and speaks peace to us in the midst of our fears. His presence enables us to tear down those idols. He equips us, he commissions us, and he gives us the ability to carry out the commission in his might. Jesus is Emmanuel, he's God with us, and he says he'll never leave us or forsake us. The question is, will we trust that? Let's pray. Father, We're often aware of our weakness and our inabilities. We have so many fears and doubts and uncertainties. Speak your word of peace, your word of confidence. Lord, may we be aware of your presence in our lives. You have never left us. You have never forsaken us. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You, your spirit is with us. Lord, may we be more aware of that. May we be equipped and empowered and have courage and might through your presence. And may we depend on you and your might to do what you're calling us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.